This What's Trending conversation is brought to you by Henley Business Radio. And it worries me what's happening to people's minds as well, because this is this massification and mollification of yeah. themselves. It's globalization. It's just this homogeny that's that's going you know, around. And you're just going, well, it's, we don't and want you've that. You've got views so. on fashion as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's, it's history. And, and yeah. even as a person in trends, I think fashion trends is a quaint little relic of the 20th century. Like Coco Chanel. Because that. It, it doesn't really matter. So, you know, when I, I read the stuff that's coming out of kind of glossy magazines at that this print is in and that colour's in. And I just go, it's not total crap. You know, when I was in, in magazines, even then, I had the kind of the deja vu thing. And I remember distinctly, because we, the team put, put L magazine together, we, was, we were buying some content globally, and there was to say a trend of sort of military-styled fashion and everything. And then literally a year or, or 18 months later, the same thing would come again. And I'm going, but didn't we do this? And then, you know... So that's not a fashion, that's just a consumer manipulation. Coco no. Chanel, didn't she say something famous, that fashion is that, that which goes out of fashion? Yes, yeah. The and, mode is... And, and style, and style, mode, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. and style endures. So, mm. and, and you can just see it, the, you know, the sort of the fast fashion thing, the, the way people curate stuff is, is vastly, vastly different. So mm. I actually interviewed the editor of Elle magazine, and she said a very interesting thing because we were talking about immediacy and what is the mm. point of print media in this day and age, especially glossy magazines, when you've got a three-month lead time and you've got a digital platform. So what on earth is relevant three months down the line when you finally get hit the streets? And she said a very interesting thing. She said, I'm the editor of a large content portal, one arm of which is a published and printed magazine. And that was a really interesting redefining of what an editor so, so role is. Massive activities around fashion and editing. And there's one artifact that comes into the tangible world, which is mm. this, this magazine that people look at, but it comes and goes. It's, yes, it's, yeah. It becomes a memento almost immediately. So they're saying, you know, the future of magazines is much more of a slow format if you want to, mm. sort of better paper rich visuals, uh, more of a collector's item. So if you actually look at magazines in South Africa, that's where that print media is going. It's going to be a coffee table collector's item that you that you start collecting and, and you won't have in that, you know, oh, this is the latest restaurant that's open in this area or whatever because you've done that on digital and that's gone. So you have to rethink what that content is and how long it's going to live, if it's going to live on your coffee table for, for That's a very interesting idea. And I'm, I'm now talking mm. to Dion Chang, who is known as the Ideas Bank of South Africa, and I hope that this podcast is going to be something that stays on a metaphorical coffee table yes. for a while. I'm John Foster Pedley. I'm the Dean Director of Henley Business School in Africa. This is Henley Business Radio. And we're doing a What's Trending interview with Dion. If you check the What's Trending hashtag, you'll find a number of interesting interviews. Now, Dion, you, you're a fascinating and almost legendary man in South Africa now. Oh, thank you, you so much. Yeah. Got your own company called Flux Trends. Yes. Right? You were the fashion editor of Elle magazine. Yes. You've got an interesting backstory as a South African as well, which I wouldn't mind exploring for a little bit, because you've got a very Chinese name and a very South African, well, not even South African persona. You've got one of these global personas. So how did that come about? Yeah, I'm What's one of those uh, true global citizens. So mm. my family has been in South Africa since the late 19th century. So my great-grandfather, who's buried in Johannesburg, came over at the age of 16 um, literally in the kind of the gold rush era. So my, my family were not part of the indentured 
labor that came mm -hmm. to work on the mines from India and China, we were a second wave that actually came to service those communities, which was interesting. So both from my father and my mother's side, uh, they came separately. On my mom's side, they made um, a bit of money here and then went back to China only, only to be met with the Cultural Revolution. So they, my mom remembers at the age of nine, her grandparents telling them, here's this bag, we have to leave now, because they were property owners, and that was mm -hmm. the, the target of, of, uh, of right. the cultural revolution. My father's side, my father grew up in Sophia Town, and he remembers delivering bread on a horse cart with my grandfather, and my father's family were part of forced removals <laughs> with, with Sophia Town. So, so my history is filled with political displacement, um, Absolutely. whether even, in China or in, in South Africa. Even the way that the apartheid regime classified mm. Chinese people as black people for a while, I mean, whatever that means, because it's it's an absurdity of all that. Yes, there, there, was a, there was the ultimate insult because they couldn't distinguish the different Asian groups apart, mm. so they were doing trade with Japan, mm. um, so the Japanese were given the rather dubious honor of being honorary whites which sort of spilt into the, the Chinese population. We were kind of pushed around not, not and a lot of honor all, in that, all, that all over the place. <laughs> um, so it was a very interesting thing mm. because I, I was actually part of a, a couple of years ago, the BBC program, Who Do You Think You Are? And we as mm. part of the South African leg of that. And there we traced my family history, which was very, very interesting for me. And that was actually the first time I'd actually stepped foot back on mainland Chinese How soil. How did that feel? Because... Here you are, a South African, <clears throat> deep South African, actually, with maybe some Chinese. Did it's, you speak any or not? No, I, I speak very rudimentary Cantonese. That's kind of where, because my family came from South China, and that's where Cantonese is, is, is still spoken, and in Hong Kong. However, the rest of China, you speak Mandarin, so right. I was a complete fish out of water there. I spent a number of years in France uh, after going to, to design college, uh, fashion college, because I thought I was going to pursue this career as a designer. So as a result, I actually speak French, also quite rudimentary French, but better my, than my Cantonese. So when I go to the East, people assume that I would speak an Asian language, which I can't. And because I also grew up in Pretoria, I speak Afrikaans and French. So it's a, it's a rather odd mix of languages. And then I spent some time in London as well. And they also look at you rather strange because you've got a slightly different accent. And they can't quite place you. And then when you tell people that you're from South Africa, or when I was living in France and tell people you're from South Africa, they would just be a little bit dumbfounded and say that's not possible. But, but I remember one of the reasons I came to South Africa, because in my sort of late teens, early 20s, I was brought up in a time when um, people were growing their hair and experimenting and free thinking, the hippie and post-hippie era. And I met a lot of emigre South Africans. And I noticed that how, in England, I noticed how they came speaking the language. But without all the baggage of understanding the British class system, the British XYZ yes. system, it disarmed everybody because they, they looked like they belonged here. They didn't quite. They weren't entrammeled by all these, all these yes. inhibitions yeah. and whatever. And they could just do what they wanted. Is that a bit how you are? It's like you're this free agent I'm, in the world. I'm feeling a lot more comfortable and settled with that. Uh, mm. I think when you're growing up, and especially the first times I went as a teenager, my parents uh, took us on a trip to, to Hong Kong, and that was a, a little bit of a baptism by fire because the reaction from people, if you don't speak your own language, was quite severe. Almost a betrayal. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't, and in South Africa, you don't quite fit the mold because mm. you're either meant to be black or white at, or mm. possibly colored. So, so an Asian South African is really an, an mm. anomaly. So you don't fit in the East. So you decide, well, okay, well, I am 
a proper global citizen and this is my global village and now after all these years and doing what i do with flux it feels very very comfortable because mm. that's where we are and there are kind of no borders and you are in this global village so i finally come home <laughs> if home it's is like, the it's like it's all this dissonance is like the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl yes this pearl is your creativity <laughs> yes it is that yeah you, that's, and that's your a, that's a good, a good way of way, uh, yeah. yeah it's uh, yes i've had lots of itches to scratch <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a what's trending conversation yes. thanks for that backstory that's really interesting and uh, you're well known in south africa for being a trend analyst and much much more obviously you're growing in yourself as you go through these multiple careers yes what's the golden thread for you behind all those careers? well the golden thread i think is is i think i'm a little bit of a serial startup kind of person or mentality mm. so if i look back at the different careers i've had so in the the fashion publishing space in the magazine space mm. so it was part of the the launch team of l magazine south africa mm. and even within that i started editing men's supplements uh, before the men's magazines uh, came came in south africa um after or actually while i was there i was transitioning i was i was I was a very early adopter of, of the gig economy, so I was, I was a, a doing slashy work, I was doing the magazine work, and then I joined Lucilla Boyson, when, who was also starting up South African Fashion Week. So there was another startup there. Mm -hmm. So I was there at the embryonic stages of um, SA Fashion Week, starting that out. And that's when I dis discovered or thought that, well, there is that thread in it. And uh, without knowing it, I also decided to start Flux Trends. Um, as a, it started as a as an information distillation service. So I say to people, well, look, I've, I've run the company now for 10 years, but 10 years ago, trends weren't really trendy. So it was also starting something that was quite new that people didn't understand. And then I pivoted again sort of five years into, into the business because everybody was doing what most research companies do, which is consumer mindset right. um, for that the retail or advertising industry. And I wanted to pivot into trends as business strategy. So the strategic part of business was what really interested me. And obviously, I caught the wave at the right time because technological disruption was just starting to, to happen. So by the time people and, and, and different industries were, were realizing that, that a lot of tech was, was changing the, whatever game they were in, we were quite firmly entrenched in that and that started building a reputation of, of understanding trends as a business strategy. And I think what was interesting in terms of business terms was the stuff that we tracked wasn't just consumer mindset, but it was sort of fundamental operational issues of, of how companies formed or were formed in the 20th century, the sort of corporate structure, the labor laws, all of those kind of things which are being dismantled by technology, by a sharing economy, by a gig economy, all of these things that were, were starting to affect that. And that really, really fascinates me, you know, more so than the sort of pop culture trends and everything, although I think those are, are interesting. And what I've realized is the stuff that we track or the, the methodology of, of tracking these trends as a business strategy has become really important to businesses. Whereas I think five, 10 years ago, it was the soft stuff that didn't really matter. But all of these things have now sort of come into it everything from brands having to be politically active or, or politically aware or, or show right. their true colors to the ecosystems and, and hybrid skills you need to actually run a business in a new world order with 
all of this new tech that's coming in. But there's an interesting story within that as well, and we'll come back to the detail of what you're saying in a second, but you seem to have started off by seeing trends earlier than other people, like with your El Man magazine. Yes. But not capitalizing on them. If it had been so early, you couldn't make something of it almost, and other competition came in and took over. Yes. And then you seem to move into becoming more and more astute about innovation and trend seeing, and finding ways to commercialize and, and concretize them and, and make these into operational models that you can use as businesses. So now you've gone from these early experiments into creating an organization that actually is viable and sustainable and futuristic. Yes. And so that's very interesting. And I'm now I'm looking that. for the next, the next thing I'm now. Sure <laughs> I, I get bored quite easily. So, so. so that takes us to what's trending in your mind. So what is this next thing that you're looking at? Well, we're busy researching. We're about to just release this uh, report. We, we did something on retail about four or five years ago. This is just when online was just starting and, and e-commerce was, was raising its head and people were not quite sure of that. So we, we explored that. Now, this is the sort of the second iteration of that. And there's just globally, uh, South Africa is, is not immune to it, but just globally, you're just seeing, they're either calling it retail Armageddon or retail, a retail apocalypse, um, Mallageddon, the malls are dying out uh, as well. But it, we delved into this and what I've learned now is that there's a perfect storm that is brewing for, for, for the retail sector. A lot of people say, well, it's just a bad economy. I say that, yes, that's a, that's a, a very large element of it, but it's not the, uh, the only part of it. You're getting a complete changed consumer mindset where people want experiences, so mm -hmm. less stuff, more stories. So you, right. you, you're spending it on, on food, you're spending it on travel uh, rather than, than doing that. Um, there's impact of online, and a lot of people say, well, that's just such a small thing in South Africa, and that's when I point out, well, in, in America, South Africa is maybe 1% 1, 1 of turnover. In America, it's only 8 to 10 percent but it's not only the the actual purchasing of goods it changes your whole behavior everybody now does a pre-shop and you start researching online which means there's an impact on how you amble about in shops or go strolling about and window shopping and coupled with that is people just don't have time so, so a family day out at the mall where you're seeing people wandering yes. around exploring entertaining themselves mm -hmm. by seeing all the things they could buy and having a meal in the yeah. In the eatery section, that's dying out, you say? It's all dying out. So one of the things that, that I've been writing about is the last mile specifically of retail, getting the goods to that customer, that has changed dramatically. So everything from what seemed very futuristic drone delivery services, which is, is, is going to happen, to your on-demand food services. And, and you see how that also plays out. The Uber Eats. And, your your yeah. Uber Eats, just in South Africa, you've got something called Wazapa. So if you say make a killer biryani you pimp that out and it's an on-demand food so so that's your speciality you do that there's another company called you cook they slice everything up for you into whatever you need to do it so you basically assemble the food i've been living on that for the last three months <laughs> my wife's big on that yeah. so yes so so you know all of these things have changed and, and even if you look at the depressed economy your one percent are going to go and eat at your new fancy restaurants that are still opening up with complete abandon in in, in Johannesburg, mm. and then you've got people who are saying, "Well, I can't really afford to eat out, but then I'll use the takeout as my eat-in option." So that's a, a different treat. So, so on so many different tiers, you're just getting this, these storm clouds brewing for for retail, and even if you look internationally. That was one curveball that I didn't expect. So, for example, the big department stores in France. Because of the terrorist attacks, you've got, say, a department store like Galerie Lafayette or Printemps would have five entrances on the ground floor. 
all of those entrances are locked bar one, which means you have to funnel through one entrance, uh, which is very heavily security monitored and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it's also just it's just another psychological barrier of actually going to shop and, and doing those things. So there's a, a big change and the big, very large elephant in, in the room and in, in South Africa's uh, landscape is the malls. The actual concept of a mall as a hub of entertainment, as a hub of shopping, as a food court that you go and eat there, that is all fast becoming very obsolete. But I often hear these trends, people saying, you know, we're not going to have paper anymore. We're not going to have malls anymore. Shopping is dead. Retail is dead, whatever it is. How much of that is rhetoric and another set of trends being portrayed by a trend to to, to create some interest? And and, And how much is real? Because People don't change that rapidly. Surely the mass of people don't change that rapidly. Well, or we don't change that rapidly. We think we do. We, we, yes. we read, but the, the touch, the feel, the experience is changing. So is it this moving towards online or is it just a different way of shopping? It's, a, it's richer, it's, it's more personal. Yes. We, we've named our report once more with feeling <laughs> the new rules mm-hmm. of retail. So we're not saying that there is a retail Armageddon. We're saying that they're completely new rules and we haven't adapted to those new rules. So a lot of the little case studies are really interesting. So it's extending the, the functionality of your store, extending the, the services. So there's What does that mean, extending s- the functionality? What, so, what, if I had a shop, what would yes. I be doing to do that? So, for example, oh, there's, there, there, there's so many streams. So, so firstly, mm. you're the digitized side of it. Um, right. There's a commercial tipping point of social commerce. So we, we understand e-commerce and buying online, but your social media platforms are starting to blend into another business arm. So, so I'm going to say, I've got a friend called Debbie. Yes. She runs an organic emporium here. So she's <clears throat> very keen on organic food. Yes. Very dedicated, very purist. And she's got a nice shop. Now, let's take that shop and say, what can we do to get that shop to fit into the new trends? Right. What's, she, what's she got to do? So firstly, visual social media platforms, because it's, okay. it's a perfect thing. And it's a food, it's, it's part of the food mm-hmm. sector, which is booming. So you really got to make sure you do that. What is interesting, I'm seeing a lot of concepts that are not new. They're not groundbreaking new. I saw them surface about three or four years ago, mm-hmm. but they've been refined and they've, they're now embedded. So for example, subscription boxes, anything from the big boom is men's grooming products. The men's market is, is really grooming, uh, booming for that. But also with your organic vegetables. So or that means like you that. pay a subscription month and people and you deliver get, stuff. You get delivered, yeah. yeah. And that's the, but that's the crux. It's mm. delivered to you. Mm. So the other parts of it, if I just step away from food quickly, you're getting a lot of companies that are actually putting small little capsule wardrobes for mostly female business travelers in their hotel rooms. So you're on a business trip and you invite to a fancy dinner, you don't have anything there, they've got a little selection there for you and it literally is a room service menu, but if a clothing menu that you can buy and you can you do excellent those things. Excellent idea. Can't it wait is an excellent that, idea. Yeah. So that's what I mean about extending the... the and curated the, the and, yes. and cool in the context. So, exactly. So if you're in a different country, it works in a country. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a different hybrid in terms of real estate and mm. time. Mm. So <clears throat> a lot of people are, say, a restaurant is mm. seeing that they're open for, for lunch and possibly dinner, but when they're setting up for lunch, you've got the entire morning where the restaurant is sitting empty. Yeah. So some restaurants have decided they're going to join the gig economy and create that space for your transient workforce. 
that can come in and use it like a coffee shop, a coffice, and do your work there. So you're utilizing your real estate in a much better way and a very, very crafty way as well. So you, you just... It's like yield management on an airplane. Exactly. Like yield yeah. management space, your multi-purpose mm. space. And, and then also time yeah. as well. So some of the museums in, in the UK are offering adult sleepovers. So you actually go and see how people set up the exhibitions. There's talks in the evening and you bed down under the... So you're sitting under a, a mummy. Yes, or a big dinosaur. Yeah, With your mummy. <coughs> yes. <laughs> With the whole family. So what's the characteristic that we need to nurture to be able to capitalize on these changes? Because it's not about standardization and sort of monolithic thinking. There's no. An agility and imagination. It's, and it's, and yeah. it is, and I say unfortunately, carefully, because it's unfortunately means a huge fragmentation of your services. I think, I think the notion of selling a product mm. is gone. You're selling right. a service and a solution. Your product is linked to that service or solution, just that little shift means you've got to rethink how you do things. So you're not having a pure product or a pure service. You're getting sort of service-intensive products. Yes. Product so let's go back to your services. let's go back That's to your yeah. friend's shop. Yeah. So you're yeah. not just selling the organic product, but you are linking a service onto that. And part of the research we put out is also education. So mm. you're saying I'm selling this organic vegetable or, or, or whatever it is. Here's how you can cook it, or we'll invite you to to do a tasting session and, and do that. So you're extending that as a as an as an event. But then if you want it, then we'll also deliver it to you. So you with you, a, with a you know, a URL for a little video instruction. Exactly. Or, or a podcast about and, yeah. and pretty soon it will be delivered either by a terrestrial robot or a, or a, or a drone. So, so it, it's all of those kind of things. So it's really rethinking what your purpose is. I, I've come across that word in business and it's growing and growing and growing is interrogate what is the purpose of your brand or your business. And I'd be very hard pressed if you haven't found that your purpose has tweaked or shifted in the last three years. I'll give you an example. So Domino's Pizza is trying to, to deliver by a robot, by a drone, and everyone says, ah, oh, these are just gimmicks. And I'm saying, no, it's a, it's a redefinition of the purpose. Yes, you're in the pizza business, but Domino's purpose is to deliver you a piping hot pizza at your door. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a, change, it's a change thing. It's not your function as a pizza uh, business, but it's a, it's a different purpose that you, you're going to go for. And it's those little nuances, which I think are, are, are what's important for modern businesses now. So that's a retail trend you're mm. noticing. So what other trends uh, is your extremely observant mind? The most frequent question I get asked is, so what is going to happen to our jobs when the machines mm. have risen? And I say, well, the machines are already rising and we're actually just grappling to speak to them so we're learning the language of the machines which is ai chatbots and intelligent personal assistants of which i have one in my in my kitchen which is uh, rather fun and and what does it do so i've got google home so there's there's different ones there's uh, amazon's uh, one is called echo the persona mm -hmm. is alexa if you uh, got an iphone you've got siri this one google home you just say hey google i'm a 702 listener so tune into 702 when I walk in there or I'm busy with a recipe and I'm just like, uh, so how long does it take to cook whatever? And it will just tell you. It syncs up with my Google ecosystem. So I'll say, what are my appointments for today and when's the next time I'm flying? And it will just tell you all so, of that so kind of stuff. The fascinating thing about this is, is that we'll come back to jobs in a second, but the adoption rate for these things is rapid, rapid, because what was 
bizarre and futuristic one year is five years accepted. But now that five-year period has gone yes. down to five months or five weeks. You're so rapidly taking it for granted. That when, when, I started, yeah. when I started Flux and started tracking trends, you know, people would say, well, what's the lag between trend coming to, to Africa or South Africa? And you know, that used to be about two years. Now you're starting to see that condensed to six months. Sometimes there's trends that leapfrog, depending on if you're in the, the mobile space or the mobile payment space or banking mm. space in, the, you know, in Africa. So it's really, it's condensed so much and it's moving so fast. So for example, these IPAs, so I, I introduced uh, at, at a talk, the one lady that was in the audience said, um, somebody's going to America, I told them you cannot come back without the, the Google Home IPA. Someone brought it home for them and they said the fascinating thing about it is their three or four year old daughter is starting to speak to the IPA. And we forget that at three or four years old, you can't read or write. But there's already a communication and asking this, you know, what is that? What is that? How many stars are there in the galaxy? So part of the education process. Yeah. And that child can't read or write. So that's a, it's going to have a huge impact. Like the touch screens, because suddenly kids could play with touch screens that are learning to type. So their mm. interfaces are changing. Mm. So you've got a rapid adoption and you've got interfaces changing. They're becoming more natural and easy to use. And that's a benign effect, we hope, of, of technology. Yes. But you talked about the changes in jobs. So everyone's asking, I think, what are the jobs we prepare our kids for? Yeah. Well, maybe not even the jobs. What do we prepare our kids' minds for and, and skills? What yes. do we need to have? Now, I've got a couple of young kids, and I would really like to know the answer <laughs> to this, Dion, please. It's a, yeah, they're yeah, going to be listening into this. Yeah, I mean, in another report we did about 18 months ago, uh, you know, I like my titles, as you can see. It was called mm. um, Now Hiring, But Differently. So what we started noticing, say, two years ago, was people in one industry and thought they had the qualifications to work in that industry were ending up in polar opposite industries, mm. completely unrelated, and saying, what on earth happened there? And subsequently, we started tracking that. So if you look at the travel and tourism industry, mm -hmm. so they've been disrupted. They're still in the eye of the storm. But they're no longer poaching from hospitality schools or, or other hotels. They're going to tech colleges and they, they're hiring IT people because the, the nature of the business has become so digitized, you need those, those kind of people. Uh, we've also tracked another company called Pharma Veterans Association. They develop pharmaceuticals and they're starting to poach not from specifically the medical profession, but from law from politics from very very different why? disciplines why why would they be doing that where you bring that product out there's so many different things that are happening now i'll give you an example so when uber reared its head three four years ago mm. they poached david plouffe who was mm -hmm. uh, barack obama's campaign manager in 2008 because they wanted to they looked at business not as an entity of we're going to do this this car thing uh, they looked at it as a political campaign and Uber was their candidate. And so that's why they, they're pulling political skills into Skills there and, and technological advocacy skills. and all of those kind of mm. things all come into it. So you're looking at a very, very different So, so world going back to the metaphor of your child, your, mm. you know, obviously your friend's three-year-old mm. child who's going playing with the IPA naturally. Yes. Doesn't have any technological capability. But so the machines are coming to her yes. and enabling, enabling her to interface with them. So if the machines start doing all that generic stuff, and if you want to, if I say now to my phone, you know, hey, Siri, who is Dion Chang? Yes. You know, I'm going to get a 
Oh, oh, there it goes. <laughs> I'm going to get a whole load of stuff about you. Yes. So knowledge is a commodity or mm. commodified, right? So we can get that easily. So what do our minds have to do now to add value? What do our children have to do to add value, contribute to a society that we're building? If you don't need to have the content, you don't need to have the yes. technological details necessarily. You need to be able to mine and refine <clears throat> the information. So we're in that information era. So if you think about the corporations, our labor laws, education systems, factories, all of those kind of things came from an industrial revolution. You could have search capabilities. Yeah. yeah. So now we don't have to memorize all of that, as you're saying. Right. So what we have to do is we have to filter the knowledge, but just finding that knowledge is not the end product. You have to be able to create new knowledge out of that. So And make it what, usable, surely, yes. because it's a sense of you've got massive amounts of raw data filtered and analyzed into yes. information which is also very large but but you're saying you have to search filter filter and then do something else with that so i'll give you one example to add value. So, yes yeah. part of the the retail research i've just come across a, a company there they, they they've just brought the product new literally six months into south africa and they not only analyze data they specialize in analyzing your competitors data and yours in real time so you're actually pulling, so for example, to say we've got our big four or five banks in South Africa. If you're the one bank, you can look and pull the entire digital footprint of all of your competitors and match it up to yours and see exactly which week in this quarter we slumped on content in our Facebook page or whatever. So, so what I'm saying is that the three-year-old daughter is going to, that is the world that they're going to have to do. And so I said, oh, well, then maybe sh you, know, you should push them into stats, but then you're going to have an algorithm that does that anyway. Mm. So it's about how to manage work with the machines, which is no coincidence that they're calling all of these robots that are coming into the commercial environment cobots. So that you are, that's your new co-worker co is your cobot. So it's how to work with that and how the algorithms and the robotics are going to take the meaningless and root jobs away from you so that you can become more creative with your thinking and doing different things. That's so it. there we so go. There's two things there. The one is we've got to be able to filter information, make it useful, make sense of it, interpret sense, it, yeah. make it, make it something that's usable. And then we've got to be able to work with machines in a different way yeah, and, um, and actually be creative. Mm. So... We tend to think of creativity as this shua hippie thing sitting yeah. in the corner of an ad agency it, with pink hair and punk, you know, punk. It's rapidly people. rising up to the top yeah. of the list to. So to we all to need this. Yes, what creativity and, and and collaboration. So um, this is another trend. What you're saying yeah. is a need for creativity for everybody. Exactly, yes. and 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 that is why you're starting to see the the, the corporate structures are not dealing with the, these kind of disruptions very well because the corporate structure is is hierarchical and very very siloed, and in this new world order, you have to have a lot of collaboration. You've got to have hybrid skills, which means you can't have siloed skills because you're going to have to overlap on. on but no, on hang on. So what you're saying really is that these large siloed corporate structures, where so much has been invested into, should change. But can they? <laughs> the point is, can they? And if they can't, That's the how bad a question. thing is that? Because surely something better is coming up. Yes. They have huge difficulty in trying to change it because how do you undo what, if it's a legacy company, 70, 80 years of, of, of how you've operated. So you've been uh, a company things. for 20 years. It's had a good competitive yeah. model. And suddenly, through no fault of your own, except you haven't become this sort of hyper-adaptive, yes. disruptive, able person, this company folds around you and you're looking for another job, right? So what's going to 
future-proof you in, the, in that context? I went on a very, very interesting innovation tour last year. We visited 50 top-performing companies in New York, completely different disciplines. So one day we'd go to a 3D printing factory, right. the next day we'd go to an architectural firm, advertising agency, you'd pop into little retail concepts, all of those things. And all of that, I thought I would go and find the holy grail of, uh, of mm. innovation, and what I came back with was a different holy grail. It was a completely not what I expected. And what I found out from that was ecosystems and company culture. It was a completely, completely different operating system than what your corporate companies So when do. you're talking about ecosystems, and yes. we'll have to wrap up soon, but yeah. let's just wrap up around this. You're saying that people in organizations have got to think systemically and understand ecosystems and manage ecosystems yes. rather than the organization. So the management of your collaboration, management of people who can be co-producers with you, yes. like your co-boss, it becomes important. So this is quite a different way of thinking. It's and a our huge... And our education huge, system, does, does it prepare no, us? and that's yeah. why the, 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 the new skills report, we, mm. we started backtracking and we said, well, how far do we have to change things to, to feed the future of work? Right. And is it tertiary, is it secondary, and is it, or is it primary? And going back to the IPA and the three-year-old girl speaks to the IPA, you've got to go back to, to primary mm. to, to, to change all of that, to, to, to bring it forward. So the, the, the challenge for, for most or all business leaders and CEOs, any, anyone in the C-suite, is ambidextrous leadership because without exception, every single industry is you're trying to maintain some kind of institutional memory and, and, and knowledge going forward, but you are definitely trying to implement some new high-tech whatever into the company. So you, you've got to almost try and juggle what seems to be paradoxical strategies but you've got to merge them because it, it, it has to happen, mm. which is why when we go back to the skills again, you not only need hybrid skills with that, that aren't siloed, but you also need intergenerational hybrid skills. Mm. So it's a, it's a really new big melting pot that's but turned into this cauldron that you've got to fascinating stir potential. And But it stir seems and richer, stir. more interesting. It more is, it is. And it's, you it know, seems to offer potential rather than fear. I absolutely. Mean, and it releases that, more of ourselves. And, and I think a lot of people see all that's, that's lost in, in, in what's coming, but I'm the eternal optimist and I only see opportunity in, in shifting trends. And that's what I think is the real good thing. Thank you. Dion Chen, we'll end on that very optimistic note. Thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Dion's got a great uh, website, uh, Flux Trends. He offers consultancy and trend analysis services, speaking. And I hope you'll come and talk to us again, Dion. That was extremely interesting. Thank pleasure. you very much. Thanks so much for having me. For more Henley Business Radio podcasts, go to our website, www.henleysa.ac.za.